So whenever we sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing, it reminds me of my favorite movie. Anybody know what it is? It's a Wonderful Life. I tell you all that every year. It's a Wonderful Life. That hasn't changed. Still my favorite movie by a long shot. Um, Jimmy Stewart plays a man named George Bailey. And George is a young man who is very ambitious. He's already got his entire life mapped out. That he's going to leave behind the little town of Bedford Falls... And he's going to go see the world. He's going to build skyscrapers. He's going to do all sorts of great things and just go wherever the wind carries him. That's his dream. But as the movie plays out, George never ends up leaving Bedford Falls. His dad passes away suddenly and leaves George with the family business. Now, he he gets married and has children, and in many ways he has a great life. But George Bailey is always haunted by what might have been. He never got to live the big, adventurous life that he had dreamed about. And instead, he ends up mired in obscurity to the point that George wonders aloud if the life he has is even worth living at all. Now, it gets better, of course, by the end. But that that movie actually points us to one of the great fears of the human heart. This wasn't just George's issue. This is something that we can all relate to. It's the fear of insignificance. The fear of being unseen, unknown, unappreciated. It's the fear of living in obscurity, the fear of being a nobody. We all know what that's like. And think about it this way. What is it that drives people to be rich and famous? You know, it's not just fame and fortune that drives them. It's the feeling of significance that comes with it, right? That's what we all really want. And that's why even for us normal folks, it's the same thing deep down, deeply rooted, that would drive us to post sometimes on Facebook and Instagram. Why do I post the things I post on the internet? Because if somebody sees it, if somebody likes it, if somebody comments on it, then they are validating me. I matter. I'm smart, I'm funny, I'm attractive, I'm a good parent, my children are precious, I matter. And that drives a lot of the things that we do. I'm guilty of that too. See, nobody wants to be a nobody. Everybody wants to feel seen and significant. Well, y'all, as we revisit the Christmas story in our Bible, we really have to reckon with this, this idea Because in our desire, in our very natural desire for upward mobility, to be seen and valued and applauded, to be significant, the Christmas story actually comes as a great shock to us. The Christmas story is meant to disturb us. Because God, by his own choosing, does exactly the opposite. God does not choose upward mobility, but downward mobility. When God elects to bring his own son into the world, the king of the universe into the world, God goes as far down the ladder as humanly possible. And so we're looking today at a very famous story. It's so famous that it was included in a Charlie Brown special. Okay, it's famous. We know it. I trust that you know it. Most people who've never even set foot in church know this story, but my hope is that we'll see it with, with fresh eyes this morning. That, that the Christmas story, when we read about the birth of Christ, it's, it's intended to take our breath away. Not to be something sweet and, and mild and we kind of just enjoy it and, and breathe a sigh of sweet relief. 
It's meant to disturb us. It's meant to shake us. It's meant to bust our categories and show us something about God that we would have never guessed. And so we begin today in Luke chapter 2, verse 6. The lead up to this story, Mary and Joseph, who are betrothed, not yet married, they have made their way to Bethlehem, not by choice, but they are required to be there so that they can register for the Roman census. And that's where we find the story in Luke chapter 2, verse 6. While they were there in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her, Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. <clears throat> a story we've heard, right? But you try, to imagine, try to imagine the royal couple, William and Kate, that's their names, right? Or Harry and Meghan. Try to imagine the royal couple, pregnant and preparing to give birth. And so as, as we do, we, we've got all the camera crews gathered up in front of London's finest hospital. The world is watching, hoping to catch a glimpse of the royal baby only for the news to be interrupted with information that the royal couple has had the baby in the alleyway behind the hospital, in between some dumpsters. And William emptied out a hazardous wastebasket for the baby to sleep in. The world would be appalled. We would never stop talking about it. In fact, we would demand justice. Something went wrong. Somebody messed up. Heads are going to roll. Somebody's got to pay for this. No baby should ever be born in circumstances like that. Certainly not the royal baby, right? Well, y'all, think about what's happening in the nativity story. Think about it. And do what we talked about last week. We've got to take our hallmark glasses off for just a moment and recognize reality. We're talking about, in a sense, a royal couple, but they certainly weren't royal. They were a bunch of nobodies. Mary and Joseph, poor, unseen, unknown people. And in the story, we see they were exposed to the elements. There was no no health care. There was no epidural for her. There was no sanitation. There were no doting grandparents, even. Nothing. It's, it's an image, see, that this, it's, a, it's an appalling thing when we consider that Mary gives birth to Jesus and lays him in a manger. Y'all, that's a feeding trough made of stone used to feed livestock as they sat there waiting on their owners to, to pass through town. Like, y'all, this is, this is appalling. And it's really it's an image that we don't like, and that's why we always try to romanticize it, don't we? We've got a couple of nativity scenes in our house. They're all a little different. The biggest one that we've had the longest is called Fontanini. And uh, it's, a, it's, really, it's a beautiful set, but right there at the center is baby Jesus. White-skinned, blonde, gorgeous-haired baby Jesus. Lying in, and it's a manger, I guess, but it looks very comfortable. And he's got his hands out like this. Like he's teaching. It's baby Jesus' first sermon, you know, right there. He didn't even have notes. It's an amazing thing. Um, We don't like to imagine a vulgar, dirty, lonely manger. We like to romanticize it because it's hard for us to stomach reality. But y'all consider this is how God planned it. You think that it was an accident that they showed up in Bethlehem and there just happened to be no room for them in the inn? That God is up in heaven shrugging his shoulders looking for the email confirmation at the Hampton Inn 
because he had made a reservation for them and it just didn't work out. No, look, y'all, God intended it exactly this way. This is the fulfillment of the divine plan, that when God chose to bring his own son into the world, he chose poverty. He chose vulnerability and obscurity and loneliness. God is reaching down as far as he can. Now the question is, what, what's the incentive here for God? What possible reason could God have for sending his son into the world just like he did? Well, let's keep reading because the story works to explain itself quite well. Luke has told us how Jesus was born, but now he's going to tell us why, the meaning behind his birth. Verse 8, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. I think for just a moment about these shepherds. These were, in all likelihood, these were very poor, illiterate men. We, again, we like to romanticize shepherds. Certainly, Jesus is the good shepherd, and there's a lot to be said for, uh, for what the shepherd does. It's a, it's, a, it's a very significant calling, an important calling, but in ancient times, it wasn't of high esteem. Shepherds were often considered outcasts. They were pushed to the side. They were, these, these were lowly men doing lowly work, and they were doing it in the middle of the night when the rest of the world was asleep. There's nothing, we're not meant to read anything impressive into the state of these men. They are, by definition, they are unseen, unappreciated, and insignificant. Well, then breaks an angel of the Lord. He comes right in and stands in their midst. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. From a very practical perspective, why would God choose? If if God's bringing his son into the world and making proclamation for the first time to the world that the Savior has come, wouldn't it have made more sense for God to do it anywhere else, to anyone else? I mean, why, why doesn't God show up in the temple to the priest? Why doesn't God show up to the scribes and the scholars, to the elite? Why doesn't God show up to the, to the palace and to the king? Why come to these lowly shepherds in the field? Well, this is so significant and telling that God, right here, God is reinforcing his point. Throughout the whole Christmas story, we see it show up right here again, that the plan of God's salvation, the reason he sends a Savior into the world to begin with, is a plan to take weak, sinful, broken, shameful, unworthy people and redeem them by his grace. That's what salvation is. 
Why would God bring proclamation to guys like this, these shepherds first? It's a statement of how far His grace reaches. Just how far down is God willing to go to save us? Salvation is not for the privileged few. It's not for the well-to-do. It's not for the religious elite. Salvation is for the world. It's good news for all the people. You know, the, the Apostle Paul reflects on this and gives us, I think, one of the great statements in the entire Bible on the nature of salvation and how it works. Paul was speaking to the church in Corinth, and he speaks to the Corinthians. These are people who were almost obsessed with significance. The Corinthians thought that if they could just be strong, wise, noble people, if they could be of high esteem, then they would be something. That's what they wanted. And yet Paul corrects them in their way of thinking. This is not how it works. And I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians 1 right here, verse 26. We'll put it on the screen. Paul says to the people of Corinth, For consider your calling, brethren. I want you to think about your own salvation. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Do we see what Paul is saying? God does not save a person based on any merit that we possess. If you are wise and strong and wealthy, then good for you. But we have to understand those things are of no benefit at all when it comes to the salvation that's found in Jesus. In fact, God actually undercuts those assumptions. God intentionally works against the grain. The assumption we have that human greatness is the goal, God says, no, human greatness isn't worth anything at all. Human greatness all by itself actually hinders you from the humility that salvation requires. And that's why God chooses weakness and foolishness and poverty. That's how God chose to come into the world. What, what, what incentive would God have for bringing Jesus into the world the way he did? To show us what salvation is like. To show us what salvation is like. Salvation brings us down before it raises us up. It shows us that what we bring to the table is of no value to God, and we must receive with open hands what He comes to give us, so that no one may boast in themselves, but that we might put our faith in someone else. Y'all, salvation does not come to people who say, by my strength and my wisdom and my goodness, I'll make myself acceptable to God. No, salvation comes to those who say, I'm unworthy but Jesus Christ is my trust and my hope. He has come for me, and so I place my faith in him. 
That's what it means to know Him. That's what it means to be saved. And so when we recognize what salvation is all about, then it starts to make sense. It actually makes sense that God would come to the shepherds in the field, right? Men like these, to the least worthy, the least likely, the poor, insignificant men watching their flocks by night while the rest of the world slept. That's where God brings his light into the darkness because that's how salvation works. And so I posed this question a minute ago. What is the incentive for God? What does God have to gain by bringing Jesus into the world like this? Because we all know it to be true. If we got to script this thing out, if it were up to you and me to write the story, the plot goes that God has to enter into the world to solve the great problems of sin and death. We've got to script it out. Well, guess what? We would script it out like an Avengers movie with lots of pyrotechnics and lots of explosions and heroes, right? A great problem requires a great solution. That's how we would do it. In fact, that's how cultures have always tried to do it. Y'all, at the same time that Christ walked the earth, the Romans, they had a mythical figure that they worshipped, a hero. His name was Hercules. I'm sure you've heard of Hercules. Hercules was half God and half man. And Hercules was the deliverer, the hero, the great mighty man. So mighty, in fact, that when he was a baby, his enemies sent poisonous snakes to kill him in his crib. You know what Hercules did? He grabbed the snakes with his little baby fists and squeezed them to death. Now that's what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) That's what heroes do. That's what divine beings do, right? And here we have (laughs) Jesus entering the world poor, unseen, weak, vulnerable, and insignificant. Y'all, Jesus came as a real person, not as some otherworldly hero squeezing the life out of his enemies from the crib. No, y'all think Jesus, when he... You know how babies have that misshapen head thing because of the trauma of the birth canal and all that kind of fun stuff? Jesus, he was a real little boy. His fontanelles weren't closed up yet. Like all the things that we think about, the realities of birth, that was true of him too. A real person coming to the world in a very real and earthy way and not a way that we would be impressed. God chose obscurity. And here's the real point. I mean, here's the real reason why. Go back. I I almost glossed over the most important verses. Verse 10. Um, This is where Linus, you know, drops his blanket and, and, uh, and makes this wonderful proclamation to Charlie Brown. Listen to what verse 10 and 11 say. This is, this is the meat of the story. This is the real reason Christ comes. The angel says to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Consider this, that God does not bring Jesus into the world to impress us. Upward mobility is not something God cares about. God brings Jesus into the world for us, on our behalf, for our sake. And that's why his birth is good news for all the people. That means the birth of Christ is good news for the strong and for the weak, for the rich and for the poor, for the religious and for the secular. 
for the conservative and the liberal, for the old and the young, for the men and the women, the healthy and the sick, for the prominent and for the nobodies. The birth of Christ is good news for all. Because that's how God's grace comes to us. It comes to us backward. It's not for the privileged few who can earn their place at the table. It's for those who could never find their way through the darkness and into the light. It's for sinners lost and in need of a Savior. A Savior has come, and He came for the very lowest. Everything about this story works backward from our assumptions as to how life is meant to work. Everything in life, y'all, that's worth having is earned. You got to earn your grades. You got to earn respect. You earned the love of your spouse. You have to earn your letterman's jacket. You earn your promotion. Nothing's handed to you. How would anybody ever get ahead like that? You've got to earn it. And yet, God breaks the category here and says, I bring good news for everybody. No one gets left out. Y'all, a couple of weeks ago, we had some special guests that came to visit us. Maybe you were here on that Sunday. Uh, pastors from India, Moses and Mohan, uh, father and son, who were doing a tremendous ministry work there in India. And they, they mentioned this very briefly on that Sunday, but over coffee I was able to ask them a little bit more about the Indian caste system, C-A-S-T-E. There's a caste system that makes up the culture of the Indian people, and it works like this. It basically, you're, you're given a station in life. You're born into it that there are divisions among the people there, that some are in the what they're called the upper castes, and then some are in the lower castes. And the caste that you're born into establishes your place in the world. So that if you're born into an upper caste, well, then that means you have the privileges of a certain kind of education and a certain expectation of wealth and privilege and opportunity. You get to shop in certain stores because you're in the upper caste. But if you're in the lower caste, well, then that means that, that you're basically left with the scraps. And no matter how hard you work and seek to achieve and grow out of your station in life, you can't. Once you're born there, you're stuck there. It's who you are, and it's how you're forever defined. But Moses and Mohan are pastors of the Christian church. And for those who come to faith in Jesus, they're brought into the church. That's a new family, a new community, where the caste system doesn't exist. It's the one place in all of India where the caste system does not apply. It's in the church. And I was asking Moses, you know, is it, is it hard for people when they come into the church to become accustomed to this new way of being? I mean, to, to kind of drop the caste mentality. Is that hard for them? He said, oh, it's incredibly hard because it's all they've ever known. It's their station in life. It's, all, it's, it's a violation of, of reality. Right? But Moses said, when the freedom and the joy of Jesus begin to really take root in their hearts, those divisions start to fade away. They start to fade away because they recognize that the birth of Christ, the coming of Christ, is good news for all the people. And in Christ, we are now one. Y'all, this, when we really consider the nativity and the soundings and the reverberations of the nativity throughout all the universe for all eternity, when we really think about what this means, it's supposed to take our breath away. It's not supposed to just make us feel nice and sweet. It's supposed to shock us and change our perspective of God entirely, the great and glorious God of the universe. 
enters the world in humility and vulnerability so that he might save those who walk in darkness. That's a truth that we're never meant to get over. It changes us. It changes us personally. It changes culture. It's meant to change everything. That's the power of the coming of Christ in the manger. And, you know, I love this story because in the Christmas stories, there's, you know, there, there's kind of built-in responses. As a pastor, I don't have to create an application for us this morning. I don't have to try to find one and bring it out of thin air. The response is built in. You know, last week we saw the story of the angel Gabriel who comes to Mary and her response, Behold the Lord's bondservant, I am yours, may it be done as you say. Mary responds in faith and obedience. Man, that's how we ought to respond to the coming of Christ. Well, look at this response here today. Another response that's worthy of our imitation. We see it in verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And so they came in a hurry and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. So the shepherds respond with urgency and priority and praise. Let us go right away in a hurry and see it for ourselves. Nothing in that moment mattered more to them. Now, we would say, well, of course, I mean, an angel, a host of angels just showed up right in front of them. What else are they going to do? It's a very natural thing, right? Of course, they're going to run to Bethlehem and see. But y'all, just again, it's hard for us, I think, sometimes to consider that these are real people. This is not a, these are not characters in a fairy tale. These are real people, these shepherds, just like Mary and Joseph were real people, just like Jesus was born in a very real and natural way, not romanticized. This is very gritty and real. This is how it happened. And so if these guys are real, then that means they have, just like us, all the same struggles and worries and fears and sins and griefs and issues that real people have. They're not glassy-eyed men going to see Jesus and thinking, you know, one day we're going to sit on somebody's stereo in statue form, doting over this precious blonde-haired child. No, no, no. no. These are real guys. And when when, when the angel breaks through the darkness, he wasn't just breaking through the world's darkness, but the angel's coming into their darkness. These are sinners in need of salvation, just like the rest of us. And when the angel looks at these shepherds and makes this very global proclamation to them, he also says this. He says, there has been born today in the city of David for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He's your Savior. Not just generically the world's Savior, but he came for you also. Y'all, is there any other rational response for these men but urgency and priority and worship. He's come for us. Men who knew they couldn't earn it, men who knew that they couldn't climb the ladder socially or religiously, 
Men who were stuck in their station of life for good. And the angel breaks through and says, He's come for you too. And to my shame, y'all, I, especially this time of year, there's so much distraction. There's so much for me that I allow to get in the way. And my, the urgency and priority and worship of Christ, a lot of times it takes a back seat. And I need to hear this and see this today. I'm sure you do too. That we might respond as they did. Y'all, it's, it's an amazing thing that the nativity happened in the first place. I mean, the, a virgin-born son of God. That's amazing enough, right, that it happened. But when Luke tells us why it happened, what it means, that God, in all his glory and holiness, that God looked upon a weary world, Dark and despairing, a world of lost sinners and nobodies. That God willingly, lovingly sent his son to the lowest place he could. That he might then raise us up by his grace. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that man no more may die. That's what it means. And that's why we should never be the same, having come to know this truth for ourselves. Now, right here at the end as we close, I want us, I want us to be reminded that the birth of Jesus all by itself is not what saves us. The birth is the beginning of the story, in a sense, but not the end. The fact is that Jesus stoops low in his birth, but he actually came to stoop lower than that. This same Jesus came to die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And God, having secured our forgiveness through the death of His Son, God then raised Him up again to new life, eternal life, victorious life, where Jesus Christ now reigns and rules forever. That's the totality of His saving work, that He was not only born and lived, but that He died on our behalf and was raised to secure our own resurrection with Him. And y'all, if that is true, and it is, then here's the wonderful outcome of our faith. For those who have faith in Christ, nobody is a nobody. We are children of God, disciples of the Lord Jesus, rescued by His grace, made a people of light no longer to walk in darkness. We are heirs of His kingdom and those who are promised a resurrection of our own to share in His glory forever. Praise God that He was willing to come down low for us, that He might raise us up by His grace. May that truth take our breath away today. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning. I thank You that in our great search for significance, in our great deep desire to just be somebody, that, Lord, we, uh, we are, are constantly looking in the wrong place. We're looking for the approval of others. We're looking for an, an achievement that we might produce with our own hands, and, and that will make me something. But Lord, would you do the great work this morning of, of bringing us low and humbling us? 
We are, in, in the deepest, truest sense, we are nobodies. There's nothing that we can do to earn or achieve what we need most. Um, and Lord, the Christmas story is for us the affirmation that God Himself becomes a nobody. That You would send Your Son Jesus weak and vulnerable and killable, poor and needy, that He would come just like us, but that He is our light in the darkness. He is a Savior. Come to, born, come to be born and come to die. Come to be raised again that we might be esteemed as children of God forever. Lord, help us this morning to find our, our place, to understand what we really are. That in Christ, Lord, we are... We are all, Lord, that you intended us to be. And we are, we are those now who stand in a promise, Lord, that you will glorify us and bring us into perfection forever. All because you were willing to send your Son down low to raise us up. Father, let that, let that truth disturb us in the best kind of way this morning. Shake us. Shake us out of our slumber. Shake us out of our uh, familiarity with these stories. That, Lord, there was no, there's no depth you weren't willing to enter into to bring someone like me to salvation. And that, Lord, if we will by faith today receive Jesus Christ, then, then we can know these things, Lord, truly and eternally. Father, thank you that you did not leave us to ourselves, but that you came for us. And let it, Lord, be good news for all people today, all the people, Lord, at Harvest Church who hear this message. Lord, um, let us receive it with gladness, with urgency, and priority, and praise. Thank you, Lord, for what you've given us. Let us not take it for granted. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.